0: Peace be with you. Um, if you got your Bible, you can open it to Exodus 12. That's what we're going to pick up in our story, going through the book of Exodus. So turn your Bible on if that's your thing. Exodus 12. As you turn there, um, we... So just to kind of pick up, in case you're kind of coming in and out on Sundays, you're visiting, we've been going through uh, the book of Exodus, and we've really been kind of taking major chunks of it. Obviously, it's a huge book, and we could spend way more time than we are in it. And so we don't tackle everything, every little nuance in the story, but we're trying to hit the bigger topics to kind of give us what we would call like a biblical theology for you, so you can kind of connect the Old Testament and the New and see where it all, how it all fits together. But we finally approach, at this point in the story, The exit for Israel, they've been in slavery uh, for 430 years, and now they're about to exit it, and God is about to lead them out. And uh, we come upon that, and we come upon the instructions for that evening and that great exit, and God has promised to rescue them. He's delivering on his promises. He's delivered nine plagues to Egypt to kind of have a wake-up call, but Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he will not listen. He will not bend. He will not be moved. And so in hot anger, the author tells us, Moses marches in and has this last kind of conversation. Uh, It's not really much of a conversation. It's more like I'm delivering some really hard news for you, Pharaoh, to let him know that a death blow is coming, um, which will cause their release. And so we're going to pick up there. And so we're Exodus 12, verse 1, and we're just going to read down. I have down there to 18... It's a mistake. Just, we're just going to read the 17, so you can ignore that last verse. Um, here's what it says. Oh, and if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's word, just out of respect for God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month uh, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then uh, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in the water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your your sandals on your feet and, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So, um, despite, and you might not find this remotely surprising, but despite what you might think, um, most people really like to talk about themselves giggling, because you know kind of this is somewhat true, um, and I, I, this isn't, I'm not doing a talk on like our narcissism or any of that, like, I, there's, there's actually, I want, actually want us to think about this at the beginning of this bit of the story, because um, we're very much talking about identity, and, and I was thinking a lot about this this week, about this reality, I was researching some of this, and, you know, you get most people in the right company, and there, there's just this enjoyable feeling, um, it's actually on, almost on a chemical level, even, There's an enjoyable feeling that we get when we get to share personal information about ourselves. Now, not necessarily private information. I know that that's not always true of us, that we don't always like to share vulnerable, private uh, information about ourselves, but we certainly like to disclose personal information about ourselves. Um, In case you think I'm crazy, in 2012, a, a study came out of Harvard by a couple of neuroscientists. They were actually able to show brain images Lighting up um, that showed that, that when people are um, sharing information, disclosing information, personal information about themselves, the, the parts of their brain are firing the same parts of their brain that fire when they're eating food or when they're having sex. It's that pleasurable for you <laughs> uh, to actually talk. That's why so many of us lo- like to go to therapists. It's just true. We, we like to, to share and open up. And, 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 and think about and process out loud who we are as people. Um, within that same study, they offered m- modest — this is interesting modest financial gain uh, for participants in the study, um, if they were willing to answer questions about other people, <clears throat> and people actually consistently passed up the money. <laughs> they would prefer to take less money so that they could talk about themselves. Fascinating, isn't it? You're like, well, I know that that's not me. I know, know. Some of you are more naturally hardwired for silence or you know, to be shy, to be reserved and, and sharing. But by and large, I, and I have found this to be true over my lifetime, that um, most of us, um, I dare say, let me say, put this way. I've never met a person who doesn't like learning and processing who they truly are, even if it's just. Even for the shyest people, they'll spend enormous amounts of time and money and energy on Ancestry.com. You know, or most of us will spend large amounts of time and have a a large amount of interest in looking at personality profiles of ourselves, right? And um, we like to look at things like the Myers-Briggs or the DISC or the Enneagram or uh, any number of one of those things where... We learn things about ourselves, and we try to gain some kind of understanding. And I think, again, some of this, we, we, we think about some of this, and we think, oh, geez, we're just all little raging narcissists. And, and, and look, I mean, maybe. Um, but I also think it's just part of the human condition that I don't think is necessarily bad, and that is you really want to know who you are. I mean, I think there's, this is the arc, this is the, this is the journey of the human, you, you, the discovery of your own sense of identity. It's why, you, it's why we connect to Disney movies, isn't it? isn't it? Isn't essentially all the good Disney movies about their wrestling of identity? You know, Elsa's wrestling with who she is. Psh, I freeze things. Um, you think, it's a, it's a sister story. Well, no, it's an identity story. You know, Moana, the same thing. Aladdin's wrestling with who he is. So is Jasmine. I keep going, I, I, I can, I've watched them all. I spend many, many hours watching these films and it's like every time I watch them on repeat, I'm going, this is just, it's an identity story. They're wrestling with who they are. They're trying to come to terms with it. They've got one people or one person or the, the world around them telling them one thing and, but they're wrestling with this inner, so anyway. And this isn't a talk about Disney movies. This is a talk about identity. And I'm just saying that when we see these things and we watch these things, we read these things, we connect to them because this is what you're doing. This is what I'm doing. Wrestling with our identity. And we enjoy it. I mean, barring it challenges our preferred and <laughs> digestible notions of ourselves, I don't know of anyone that doesn't like learning or grasping to some degree the meaning of our, who we are as people. So the question... I guess I'm posing at the beginning of this thing is, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Not like, don't give me your Myers-Briggs. You know, don't, don't, like, who are you on a deeper level than your career? Because I know, for some of us, that's like, that's the natural, this is who I am. I'm a, what I do for a living. No, you're not. Who are you deeper than who, your connection to your family, your role in your household? Deeper than that. D- d- deeper than what you'd like to do or the persona that you put on social media. Deeper than that. D- deeper than all of these things. I'm an athlete. I'm a nerd. I'm a... No, no, no. It's not. Who are you? Do you even know? Could you do it quick? Like, could you give it in an elevator pitch? You know? Could you put it on a drink napkin succinctly and say, here, this is who I am? Or would, when, when you process it out loud with somebody, if you were to do that, um, would it be like, a, like a, a series of disjointed, disconnected little stories, and you're the person listening like, I, 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 there's, there's no thread in the midst of any of this. Who are you? The thing about this is, the reason why I'm talking about this is, although the Bible isn't really a story about you, I mean, it it certainly gives us a lot of sense of human condition and our tendencies as people and kind of how we're hardwired. But ultimately, uh, you know, the Bible is a story about God more than it is a story about me or you. Um, That being said, it's telling you about this God so that you can relate to him, so that you can make sense of who you are. And it very much wants to do that. It's a story about what God is doing and done for you, and and it's interested in telling you that because that shapes who you are, if you understand who God is and what he's done for you. Understanding who God is and what he's done helps you understand your role and your purpose and your meaning in life, and it therefore shapes the way you live, which very much is concerned with how you're living. All of Exodus, we've been going through it, and particularly the last plague scene, In the great story of Israel's release from slavery, it's an identity story. I mean, I've been up here numerous times during the series, and I keep coming back to this. This story is an identity story. You know, God is on the brink of delivering the most decisive judgment upon Israel, or sorry, upon Egypt. And He's about to reveal to not only Egypt, but all of the Israelites that He is the God who is unmatched in power, in might, and wisdom. He's going to deliver on his promises, and, and that deliverance will come through sacrifice and blood. I mean, these sections of the Bible where we see these, uh, you know, furry little animals being, like, bleeding and being sacrificed, it's like, we're like, this is so strange. And there's, there's deep, deep meaning into that, and, and we'll get into a little bit of it today. But in this section that we're reading, the instructions are very clear as to what they're supposed to do. The judgment is coming in the form of death on all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Rich or poor, doesn't matter. Egyptian or Israelite. We miss that sometimes. Death is coming. All firstborn sons are forfeit in the Bible. It's hard for us as modern people because we have kind of this ingrained sense of entitlement. We think everything is ours, but from the Bible's perspective, it would say, no, no, it's not. It's God's. Everything belongs to him. Everything. And we are at times allowed to keep some of it for ourselves for a time. And so there's this judgment coming. And and, and the thing about that is, we we read this, and it's it's a hard read because we're like, this seems so unfair. But we have to recognize um, that the horrible atrocities that have already taken place in Egypt, the genocide, I mean, they had been for years, they've been drowning uh, babies in the river. It's horrible. and it's, The ground itself is crying out, and God is doing something about this. A price has to be paid, not just for the release uh, of the children of Israel, but, but more importantly, a price has to be paid for the sins and evils committed in Egypt and all the genocide. And it's important to recognize this. This, is, this simply isn't judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt, although it is that but it's judgment on sin. That's a more important reading of the book of Exodus. That's why God tells Moses this in 12, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. In other words, the Lord was blind to ethnic distinctions. And you read the story and you think, well, he is making a distinction. He's only making a distinction on the basis of blood. Who's under the blood? Those are the ones that are held separate. But it's only on the basis of blood, not skin color, not tongue, not language, not culture, blood. That was the decisive marker. And so therefore, what we see here is that because God isn't only just, he is just, but he's also merciful. He's equally skilled at both of these. And so he provides this way out. So each family is to take the spotless lamb, sacrifice it, paint their doorposts in the blood with the blood, and then roast and eat the meat, uh, the sacrificial lamb, and then burn all the excess of the innocent one so that nothing is left over. And they are told this in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the sign is is payment. The blood is payment. So we understand that. The substitute in place of their human son. Innocent blood in place of what is rightfully God's. And when the Lord goes through Egypt at twilight, he will pass over that home. Now, there are enormous reasons implications embedded to this, like I said, this blood-filled <laughs> sacrifice scene, and some of which we'll get to here in a minute. But I want us to just take note of something. Um, because when we get to this section, it's like, man, how many hours do we want to spend here? And it would be valuable for you to spend hours here. There's a lot going on in every paragraph and chapter in the book of Exodus. But I want to take note of something um, that I think we just naturally actually pass over in the text as readers. We never notice it, and it's, I think it's just so significant when we think of like what we're doing in the story and how we're to understand it. Notice this at the very beginning of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Well, like the liturgical guys, like Michael Brown. It's like, I love liturgy. The, the, here, why are we talking about calendar? <laughs> why is God, I mean, why there is a plague coming to town. Death is coming to town. Why, why, are, we talk, why are they getting a new calendar? What is going on? I mean, for all we know, They've been in slavery for hundreds of years. There there was no need for a calendar. There's no need for knowing or keeping track of days. Every day was the same for them. Work, work, work. It's springtime as this is being announced in their day. And the Lord is essentially saying, Moses, you and the people are establishing your whole calendar year around this event. You're getting a new calendar. It starts today at this moment. It is your New Year's, essentially. It's a defining identity marker at the beginning of the year for you as a people. This meal, the meal that they're being instructed to have, is the beginning. Did you catch that? This month shall be for you the beginning of months. This death, this substitution, this meal, is like a reset on them as a people. It acts as a kind of a defining identity marker. It's it's what all this beginning talk and this meal talk is, is it's hearkening back to Genesis. You have to stop and really notice it and pay attention to it because meals are threaded through the whole Bible, you know. Meals are the bookends of the Bible. Turn to Genesis 1 and you'll see things about meals. Turn to Revelation at the end of your Bible and you'll see things about meals. They're identity markers, important moments. When God created Adam and Eve, he invited them to a meal from the garden filled with trees. Genesis 1:29. It was commemorating a moment. The point here is that although a death is sweeping through Egypt that night, new life is springing out of it, and a meal is marking that. At the Exodus, in a sense, God's people are being recreated. They're being reconstituted as human beings. It's like, the, it's like humanity is starting over. What is lost in Genesis 3 in many ways isn't fully, complete and fully isn't realized, but humanity is getting a reset. A fresh start. That's how we are to understand it. And the calendar is being shaped all around it. Now, there'll be more to come in shaping and forming this identity. We'll get some of that uh, next week when they get a law and they learn how to like, live and make sense of life and life that's not under Pharaoh anymore but now under God. So there's more to come in terms of shaping this identity. They'll need a law, they'll need a church building, they'll need lots of things. But at this new birth, this new beginning, the fundamental core of who they are is being shaped. And this is the major point that God is getting across to Moses and the people. You're born again. Like the sacrifice of this spotless little lamb and, you know, Painting your doorpost and all the strangeness that comes with that and eating this meal and reciting certain words and thinking about time to come and commemorating this and reciting certain words and telling it to your children and rehearsing it over and over and over again. It's all about thinking about the fact that you have been born again. You're not a slave anymore. You're given a new identity. You're not merely a freed People, although you are becoming a freed people, you're a redeemed people by God's mercy. Now, to redeem someone is to buy them back. They've been separated from God, they've been enslaved, but the time that time has passed, and now they rightfully belong to God through sacrifice, by his power, and they'll soon be free to worship him and live in a new way, so unlike the ways of Pharaoh that robbed them and others of their dignity. And they're going to have to figure out, what does it mean to realize that we have dignity? All of that's coming for them. Now, if you were to really think this out and be objective and honest as you think about freedom, have you ever thought about freedom? You're, we're Americans and we just take freedom for granted. But what is freedom? Freedom. And how do you define it? What I'm trying to get at here is that if we read the story and we think of them as being slaves and we think of them as being now f- set free, but yet they're still under a new master, right? They just, they're giving up one master, Pharaoh, to then come under another master, God. Some might argue and protest and say, well, is this actually freedom? Isn't this slavery of a new kind? In volumes have been written on this, and I, truthfully, probably opening a can, that is too big for me, to be fair. Um, but, you know, Paul even takes up this issue at some critical depth in the New Testament. But if I may just dip my toes in for a little bit on the issue. Um, I think, and I've been thinking a lot about this all week, I think we just, myself included, we, if we don't stop and catch ourselves, we naturally tend to think of freedom in, in, in terms that are not good. They they don't actually align. And I think the Bible wants us to reshape and, and have us reset our, our imaginations on what freedom is. We often think of freedom, uh, and sadly too often the freedom that we actually we think we want, in actuality, is just unchecked individualism. Uh, self-ruled self-reliance. I, I want what I want when I want it. And I want to be able to get that. That's freedom for many of us. The power, the ability to do what I want, when I want. And when I'm not able to do that, I'm not really free. But under those terms, Pharaoh, we see that's the kind of freedom he had. He was free in this sense. He, he thought himself a powerful, free God. But as history showed, and this is very much kind of a subplot of the story, what the history is showing is that with that kind of freedom, we, we see what happens to Pharaoh. He, he wasn't actually powerful, nor was he actually free. I mean, he could conquer his enemies and, and conquer a poor, oppressed people, but he actually couldn't conquer what? Himself. And he wasn't free really at all on a deeper level. He could dictate, he could not dictate the created order like God. He, he, he could not could dictate the future, nor could he conquer his stubborn will. He, he could not detach himself from his anger and his pride. His fear and his anger ruled him to the point where it ruined his life and the, this whole community around him. When you look out at society, we kind of see this as free people. We sabotage ourselves with our freedom. We sabotage our families. We sabotage our neighborhoods, our school systems with our so-called freedoms to do whatever we want, unchecked. This kind of freedom, that kind of freedom is a tyranny of another kind, and it always implodes and ends in self-sabotage. Real freedom, I'm learning even myself, I'm wrestling with this, because this is very much at the heart of Christianity and the Christian understanding of freedom. Real freedom has this kind of ironic twist to it. Real freedom um, shows that itself to be this, this, you have this willing surrender of your will so that you might be conquered by love. Um, it was Henry Nouwen that says this so well, so I'll just quote him. He says this, to be able to enjoy fully the many good things the world has to offer, we must be detached from them. Uh, now think about this. I'm going to make you think this morning. To be detached does not mean to be indifferent or uninterested. It means to be non-possessive. Life is a gift to be grateful for and not a property to cling to. A non-possessive life is a free life. But such freedom is only possible when we have a deep sense of belonging. To whom then do we belong? We belong to God. And the God to whom we belong has sent us into the world to proclaim his name, that all of creation is created in and by love and calls us to gratitude and joy That is what the detached life is all about. It is a life in which we are free to offer praise and thanksgiving. Do you see what he's saying? The paradox of real freedom, according to the Bible, is to willingly choose to let go of a sense of entitlement. Like, you choose to let go of it. It's really difficult. It is real freedom is for you to get to the place where you say, I'm entitled to nothing. It's all a gift. It's all a mercy. Or it's slavery. I'm not entitled to have what I want. I'm not entitled to have what I want when I want. I'm not entitled to have what I want when I want on my own terms. It is God's life. It is God's design he is the creator he is free to do what he wants and when we can kind of when we can surrender to this and and think this through and actually find ourselves flourishing in that place then it is only then that we become actually free to see that this life is a gift and that it actually belongs and is ruled by the one who's created it and the interesting thing is is when you do this and you wrestle with this idea of surrendering to your will and dying to it, is another way of putting it, when you do this, the interesting thing and the fascinating thing about it is is that you cut the power. You cut the power out of the stubborn will that enslaves us. You really cut its head off. The question is, do we see that our stubborn will for sovereignty is not only tyrannical but insatiable? it's, It's constant. And it's so often hurtful to you. And it's hurtful to your family. And it's hurtful to your friends. And it's hurtful to your church community. It's hurtful to your coworkers. Like when you're not willing to face up to your stubborn, sovereign will for sovereignty and control. Even when we think, but I have the best of intentions. Well, maybe, maybe it starts out that way. But it eventually gets ugly. The real free person, the person that's really good in their home, the person that's really good in their workplace, the, re- the person that's really truly good in the school setting or wherever, whatever setting you want to, is the one who's actually wrestling with this sense of like sovereignty of self and saying, hey, I, I, I don't think I'm owed anything. I think it's all a gift. If our minds and hearts can come to that understanding if we can say yes 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 this is this it's all connecting for me this this harkens back to genesis 3 you know this idea of like not owning this sub this stubborn will of pride this is what brought shame this is what brought guilt this is what brought death into the world that's the reading of genesis 3 for those of us that see that and go yes it all makes sense for those that do then then we are primed for the gospel of jesus in a significant way in the same way that God was shaping their identity, the Israelites' identity, around the Passover night of sacrifice and redemption, he wants to shape my identity and your identity around it as well, but in a much deeper and fulfilling way. I mean, think about the connections of this, the, the, the night that we just read, but Jesus t- picks this up. He picks up on this whole story, and he, 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 get, he puts himself into it and reimagines it for us and for them. Jesus came into the world and said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, that's Mark two seventeen. In other words, I didn't come for people that think that they have, um, they're doing just fine in their self-reliance. I came for the people that are saying, I, I'm not good on my own. It's why in John 1, that text declares him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would it say that? Well, you should know. You just read the Exodus story. It's why Jesus, when he's crucified, do you know what week he is crucified in? Passover week, the week of unleavened bread. Hearkening all the way back to this story in Genesis, or sorry, in Exodus. His body would be the spotless sacrificial lamb. In the same way that the Israelites were told not to break any of the bones of the lamb none of the bones of Jesus would be broken. In the same way that the Israelites were told to slaughter the, the spotless lamb and take um, a hyssop branch and dip blood, paint their doorposts with it, You know, it was a hyssop branch that would be reached up to Jesus when he was on the cross. And then he would be pierced, and water and blood would spill out and run down the wooden cross. In the same way, um, but in a, sorry, in a different way, this lamb, this lamb would stay dead, but this Jesus, this true spotless lamb, he would be resurrected by God's power, proving that God saw the blood as a substitute for, for my life and for your life. And that he would look upon the blood and he would be satisfied and he would pass over me, and he would pass over you. And that this would be a final sacrifice. You know, it's why Jesus on the cross says it's finished, because no more sacrifice, no more killing needs to happen for you and I to be passed over. And when we believe in him, and we believe in this story, and we believe in, in all this is claiming, and we surrender our lives to this truth, we are protected, you're protected, you're set free. And in, in a completely profound way that honestly takes your entire life to even kind of grasp. We work it out forever. We constantly are working it out. That we can be born again. We set our whole year around it, in a sense. We have a clean six slate. We can set off on a new journey of being recreated and reconstituted. A new life given to us. And so all I say all of this is, I want to get back to the original question about identity and, 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 and who you are. Who are you at the core? What the Bible's trying to say, what I would invite you to see is that to be Christian is to see that at the core, before your personality profile, you know, underneath your career, underneath your, your, your preferences, underneath your hobbies, underneath your your role in your family, underneath all of that, is that you are a redeemed person. You are redeemed. Meaning you've been bought back. You were captive. You, were, you have been controlled. You, you've been released and set free from that. You, you, you weren't just captive to your own stubborn pride and self reliance, but you were captive to, to sin and to death. Like you were under that. I was under that curse. But in Christ, if you truly hold on to this truth you're empowered to die to foolish self-reliance. You can stare at any sins in your life, you can stare death itself in the face knowing that an ultimate sacrifice has already been provided. The only thing that you offer, the only thing the only work that is that is expected on our part is what? Honest confession. Just be honest with our sins. You boldly proclaim that I need redemption. I need to be under the blood. I need to be under the blood. Otherwise, I'll never be free. But where there is true confession, there's not only forgiveness of sins, but the resurrection from the dead. Have you thought of this lately? That in this life, there is no escaping the fact that you are going to die. ta welcome to Sunday morning. You are, and it is my deep responsibility to remind you of it. There is no escaping it, friend. No matter how successful you are, you are going to die. And we don't speak of this enough around here, but the reality is that under the blood of Christ, you will not stay dead. You will be resurrected just like Him. You will be resurrected to new life with Him forever. A life that we can only imagine. This is what the sacrifice provided. And we are told to think of it and say, oh, it's not just real, but it was given as a gift of no work of my own. And this shapes everything I do. This is the core of who I am. Redeemed. Later, we can read it, it's supposed to be a sign, like a brand on them, like between their eyes. I, I, I was foolish enough to run a race yesterday with my wife. And I got branded right here. There's my number. You can't really see it anymore. I'm assuming 2, 299, that was the number. That's where I finished. No, that wasn't where I finished. <laughs> I felt like that's where I finished, but I'm assuming they did that because in the midst of being tired, you'll for, just forget which runner you are. You see? And you as a person, because of your life and because of money and because of sickness, because of other things that are pressing down on you, you forget who you are. We forget all the time. And you get caught up in rival identities, other things that are pressing in on you. The things that maybe your mom or your dad kind of pushed into you, or a boss, or a spouse, or whatever it is. Or maybe it's just something that you've just been, you don't even know where it's coming from, but it's been there since you were a kid. And the text is constantly saying, and Jesus is constantly saying, no, that has to die, this is who you are. And it has to begin to change everything that you do. Holding on to this identity is immensely important. If you miss it, if you don't grasp it, if you don't understand it, honestly, nothing of what the Bible is commanding you to do will make sense, nor will it ever be appealing, which is why so many people don't read certain sections of the Bible. What I'm trying to say is, is if you don't understand, because if I say you're redeemed, and you're like, yes, amen, that was a good service, he was right. But like, listen, if you being a redeemed person isn't deeply embedded into you, and it's not something in your imagination daily. Friends, it is impossible for you to do the things that the Bible is asking you to do, that Jesus himself is commanding us to do. You're not going to love your enemies. You're not. You're going to do it for maybe a minute or a day. And then old slavish ways, are going to come back in. If you miss out on re- the understanding of redemption, it is going to be impossible for you to not retaliate when you are wronged. If you don't understand this idea of redemption, it is going to be impossible for you to give your money away to the point where it puts you at risk. You will not do it. If you, if you don't understand and you're not really imagining, the, yes, the idea that I, I wasn't owed anything and that I was under death and now I'm going to live forever with Jesus. But like If that's not in your imagination, constantly, it will be strange for you to guard your sexual life. It, it, it'll be really weird for you and almost, it'll be impossible for you to, 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 be, to take seriously your thought life and what's entering in and what you think about other people. It, 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 it'll, be, it'll be impossible for you to surrender your feelings of anger or, or your feelings and your need to prove yourself to people. You won't let go of it. You never will let go of that without this, without this understanding of redemption. And, and the thing about that is, is the Lord knew. He knew that. It, he knew that forgetting is at the foundation of all of our mistakes. I mean, if you, you take one of your mistakes and you say, well, I... I drank too much, or whatever it is that you say. Go upstream. What's upstream from that? Well, I was just tired, and I was in a bad mood. Go upstream. I can tell you what upstream is. Upstream, it's you forgot who you were. It's Israel's problem over and over and over again. They get in trouble. They, they, they color outside the lines because they forgot They forgot who they were. When your heart goes astray, according to the Bible, it's because we forget who we belong to, how deeply we're loved, and how huge the sacrifice has been to redeem us. It's why even before the Passover took place, the Lord is giving them instructions on how to remember it. you notice that? It hasn't even happened yet, and he's turning them into a people of educators who would know how to teach their children about this. This is what you'll say when your son asks, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this dinner? Because it is what the Lord did for me. That's what you're supposed to say. Chapter 12, verse 14. This this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And the same is true for you. The same is true for us. In our redemption, that Passover sacrifice meal was really just foreshadowing the complete Passover that was to come. That is why on the night of Jesus' betrayal, you never catch that. The sacrifice hasn't even been made yet. He's in the room with his friends. It's on the night of his betrayal, before his death, that he begins to talk about the memorial. You realize that? He ate a meal with his disciples, and this is what he said. I'll just read it. I don't read it all the time. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat what? This Passover with you. Before I suffer. Before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. Every week, or every once in a while, and you go. They do this, this, this thing every week. It it seems like a ritual. Yep, yep. And it harkens all the way back to Exodus. It harkens all the way back. We are a people who forget, and we don't rely so much on feelings. Feelings matter, but sometimes feelings are problematic, and we just need a regimen to remember. You see what Jesus is doing in Luke 22 now. For those of you who who have never made this connection before, and it's okay, many people have never made that, that connection. He's saying the original Passover meal was good for its time, but now it's being replaced by this. There's a new meal that is needed because a new and final and perfect sacrifice has been provided. And this meal isn't just about remembering his sacrifice. Did you catch that? It's also about hoping for the future. You know, it's a, a, a humanity's relationship with God got kicked off with a meal in Genesis. And friends, it will end with a meal. Marriage supper of the Lamb. Hooray for everybody that gets invited to it. Where we were celebrating the redemption of the whole world. So uh, this is the the deeper meaning of the Lord's Supper and Communion. We, We do it to remember who he is so that we are reminded of who we are. We find our identity in looking at him. Jesus, unfortunately, and I have my issues with Jesus too, just like you do. And Jesus, unfortunately, I say this as a pastor, he did not make it explicit how often we are to remember this hence some of the arguments that Christians unfortunately get into sometimes i think it's the wisest counsel for us to not be dogmatic where the scriptures are not and so on the issue of the lord's supper sometimes christians turn quarrelsome over issues like should we drink from the cup should we take the bread and dip it like or should we the wafers that's more sacred i like we we you know should it be weekly should it be monthly Should it be yearly? These are the things that that Christians, in my personal opinion, sadly, fight about. When what we really should be giving ourselves to is thinking about what is it that we're doing when we do it. We're remembering the Lord and His sacrifice. We are remembering, we are coming to it with humility, with honesty, and with gratitude. And we should take part in it with a kind of reverent anticipation that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the power that can heal your hardness of heart and will resurrect you from the dead. And so you don't have to be a member here um, at the Oaks to take part in the Lord's Supper, but I hope you have at least some, I've added some understanding to you of what we're doing when we take part in it. That we do it not in an unworthy manner, we just confess whatever stubborn will, pride issues that we've got going on, and we all have them, we confess them. We say, I want to be under the blood. I need the blood. I need to be under the lamb. And we take part. And you're invited to do that. And if, and, and if that's not where you're at, man, I, that's okay. But this doesn't make sense for you to come take part in that. There is a distinction. There just is. Some of us want to be under the blood and some of us don't. It's a, a real reality for all of us to think about. And so where do you stand? Where do you place your heart? I hope it is under the blood of Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we give thanks for you this morning. We give thanks for the sacrifice. May it fuel our, our hearts and our imaginations to, to, be, to be reminded <laughs> that in you, we can truly be free. And that freedom is not to just do whatever we want, but that, that freedom is to worship you, to think of you, to put you above everything. To, to, to realize afresh that, that apart from my redemption, I am stuck in slavery. And so, Father, may we all be reminded of that this morning. May, may we, maybe for the first time or for the hundredth time, just be brought to a place of gratitude this morning. Be thankful and to be brought to a place of peace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.